and we'll read verse 1 to 12. This is, chapter is a little bit shorter, and we've been taking a chapter, a half a chapter at a time, so uh, there you go. So we'll do verses 1 to 12 today. <clears throat> Proverbs 18, verse 1, says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a whisper are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall is his own imagination. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your wisdom to be granted to us today. Lord, as we open up and unfold the very words of life, Lord, we do pray that we would seek safety, Lord, in the strong tower, which is the name of the Lord. Lord, that we would run there and that we would find safety, Lord, for the day of trouble, so that we do not come under judgment and condemnation, but rather have a place, a hiding place, by which we may pass through the judgments of God and safely arrive and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, teach us today, and we pray that you would instruct us and that you might grant to us all wisdom, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There we begin in verse 1. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Here, the one who separates himself from both God and from wise men, right, or from other men, is one who seeks his own desire. He has a desire, some lust that he wants, and his mind is set on fulfilling that desire. And no matter what another person might say to him, he's never going to listen to them. He's going to separate himself from all sound wisdom so that he can pursue whatever he wants. And in his own mind, he's going to justify this sin, this lust, this desire that he has. So he has the desire, and then he justifies it in his own mind. And anything that contradicts it or seeks to oppose his desire, he's going to separate himself from these things. And then if one such contradiction is brought up to this evil desire, he's going to quarrel against it, right? He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Whatever would prohibit him from fulfilling this sinful desire, he's going to argue, he's going to contradict, he's going to bicker and fight and quarrel against all these things because he has this sin, this evil lust that he wants to fulfill and he wants to to do these things, and whatever it takes, this is what he's going to do. He will find a way to justify his own actions. No matter how obvious and how plain it is that this is wrong, it's evil, it's contrary to health and happiness, it doesn't matter, right? He's going to find a way to justify this, even if using the most foolish, vain arguments that are imaginable to man. 
in Proverbs 15, 22, says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Right? Whenever we want to succeed and we want to understand and have true wisdom, then we do want other counselors. We do want people giving us input and helping us understand the will of God. But one who just wants to satisfy his own lust and desires, he is content to rest upon his own wisdom, his own insight, his own imaginations, because he's just going to justify what it is that he already wants to do. Verse 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. A fool... Because he's a foolish, wicked man, he has no delight in true understanding, right? This is the understanding of the Bible. And the understanding of the Bible teaches us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Well, that's completely contrary to everything in the nature of a fool. The fool wants to say no to righteousness and yes to sin. So he does not delight in any understanding at all, but only in revealing his own mind. He just wants to spew out what is in his mind, what's on his mind, his own thoughts, his own opinions, his own interpretations on this or that. That's all that he cares about. So he has no desire to learn, to grow, to understand, to come to any understanding of the will of God. He already has his mind made up because he is a foolish man and he wants to live in his sin. So he's just going to reveal what is already on his heart and is already in his mind, even though, again, it is contrary to sound wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 explains why this is the case. That a, a foolish man or a natural man or a wicked man or an unbelieving man Right? These are all different ways of describing the same person. It's a person who's dead in his trespasses and sins. And in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he describes him as a natural man. The natural man of 1 Corinthians 2.14 is the same as the fool in the book of Proverbs, or a wicked and worthless man, or as Jesus calls them, a son of the devil. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. Whether those things be the doctrines of the Bible that teach us about the character and nature of God, that teach us about the nature of man, the way of redemption, of reconciliation, right? So those doctrines relating to our salvation and our understanding of God, or whether that be the moral truths of the Bible, the way of righteousness in contrast to the way of wickedness. The natural man cannot understand these things. He has no taste or desire for these things. They're foolish to him because he cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. These things must be spiritually appraised. We must be taught these things by the Spirit. And he does not have the Spirit. He only has the flesh, and the flesh is in opposition to these things. So he doesn't delight in any understanding, but only in revealing the foolishness of his own mind, his own ways. Verse 3, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. When the wicked man comes, contempt comes with him, because he, being a foolish man, being a natural man, having no desire or understanding of spiritual things, well, when he hears these spiritual things, 
when he hears about the God of the Bible, when he hears about faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, when he hears the righteousness that is laid out in the Bible, he is going to have contempt and scorn for these types of things. This is why the Bible also calls wicked men scoffers, because they scoff, and who do they scoff at? Well, primarily they scoff at God, they scoff at his people, and they scoff at the truth. They scoff at these things because they're judging God and his wisdom based upon their own carnal understanding and reasonings. They use the philosophies of this wicked world to judge God and to judge his people and to judge the very wisdom of God found in the word of God. So when they come, contempt comes with them because they are contemptible people who have contempt for the very things of God and for the people of God. And they're going to mock and ridicule these things. And then also dishonor and scorn. They bring dishonor and then they bring scorn for the things of God. This is what comes with them, but also this is what's coming for them. Because ultimately one day, God will hold them in contempt, right? God will dishonor them and God will scorn them for all eternity. Because they scorn God and God's wisdom, then God will scorn them. Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, 20 through 33, warns about those who reject the wisdom of God. Proverbs 1, 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called to you, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel, and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacencies of, fool, of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely, and will be at ease from the dread of evil. There, wisdom will mock them, will hold them in contempt. Because they held it in contempt, wisdom will do this to them also. So, in this life, with the wicked come contempt, dishonor, and scorn. And then in the life to come, this will be their portion that they will receive from God if they do not repent of their sins. In contrast, verse 4, this is the wise man. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Here, this has to be speaking of a wise man because only in the mouth of the wise man is there a fountain of wisdom that is a bubbling brook. And here, the words of the wise man's mouth are deep waters. Deep waters because the doctrines that we teach, that come from the Bible, that 
the Spirit of Christ teaches us in that he puts in the mouths of his servants. God puts his doctrines, his truths, into the mouths of the wise men. And these truths are deep, they are mysterious, they are very um, deep in, the, in their understanding. Right? We're talking about doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the relationship between the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, how both are found in the one person, Jesus Christ. Doctrines like the sovereignty of God, like his election, the relationship between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Doctrines like our redemption, the things that we've been talking about from the book of Hebrews, about the high priestly role of Christ, how all of these things relate, right? All of these truths are deep waters. These are not light, shallow, things that are easy for us to comprehend and understand, right? It takes us a lifetime of study, and we're only scratching the surface of the depths of the wisdom and understanding of God. Yet, we are able to come to some understanding of these very deep truths, and when we do, and when we talk about these things, then there is deep water on our tongue, right? We are speaking of things that are very deep and that are very sound, and it is a bubbling brook, right? The fountain of wisdom is the bubbling brook. It is a brook that bubbles over with water where men can go and find and have the thirst of their souls quenched in the very wisdom that is found in the word of God. And this wisdom God places in the mouth of earthen vessels, in his servants, in that we are ministers of reconciliation. And we are the ones who are teaching other men how to be reconciled to God. So though the source of salvation is our Lord Jesus Christ, the messengers of that salvation are you and me. We are the ones who take it out, and God puts this, these truths in our hearts, in our minds, on our tongue, and then we are taught to teach others. And when this is true, there is this fountain of water within us, and it is very deep water where men can go and find rest for their souls. Verse 5, to show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Now this harkens back to what we read last week in verse 15. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Right? To condemn the righteous and to justify the wicked or to show partiality to the wicked man is not good. To favor him, right? To give him special privileges, Right To have this kind of partiality toward a wicked man, is that going to be good for anyone? It's not good for him. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for society. And much evil is promoted in the world and in society because men are partial to wicked men, especially when those wicked men have what? A little money, right? A little money. That's what people love, and this is what they desire. And if someone has money, they will be partial to this wicked man. And then the other side is to thrust aside the righteous into judgment, to bring them under judgment and condemnation and to be more severe and harsh toward them in your treatment because of their righteousness. Neither one of these things are good because they're contrary to the justice of God. The judgment and the justice that should be seen in this earth should be similar or likened unto the very justice of God. Because that is the basis of all authority 
in earth. It all harkens back to God. So the way that we execute judgment on earth should be like the way God executes judgment. And does God show partiality to the wicked? Does God thrust aside the righteous into judgment? No. So then we shouldn't do that on this earth either. Verse 6. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. Here, the fool's lips bring strife. He brings strife because he uses his mouth, right, to spread lies, gossips, slander. He's devouring people. He's whispering here and there. He's telling people things, right? This is what he does. And he uses his mouth to cause strife between himself and other men, between one man and another man, people who before had no contention, they were at peace, they were at harmony, they have no reason to fight or to be at war with one another, and yet because of the fool, because of his lips, he brings strife to all these people who used to live in harmony. And he causes there to be divisions, to be fighting, to be bickering, to be quarreling over many useless things. And then ultimately... His uh, mouth calls for blows, right? When these things happen and people begin to argue and fight and bicker and then their tempers begin to flare up and they get angry and they get more angry and it begins to boil over, what can happen in those situations? It comes to blows, does it not? They begin to fight, to punch each other, to kick and scream and even women will do these types of things. All because... it's very rare that someone just comes up and slugs someone out of nowhere for no reason. Usually what precedes men coming to blows is some argument, some fight, some quarrel that has broken out. And many times those quarrels start because of a fool and because of his lips, because he has no control over his mouth. Whether he be one of the ones fighting or whether it be some outsider who brings this in, this is where much of it is. Begins, And this is why in James chapter 3, it talks about the tongue being set on fire by hell itself. It is a restless evil that leads to many other evils in this world. How many sins are the result of the tongue? Where it is the instigator of many sins, much fighting, much bickering, many, many quarrels. How many families have been fractured? How many friendships have been lost? And all of it started with words that came out of the mouth of a fool. Right? The book of Proverbs, we've seen this over and over again. It has a lot to say about our tongue, our mouth, the way that we use it, and the need to exercise self-control over these things. And we should give heed to this because it is a foundational sin that leads to other sins, right? That will result in many other sins, even coming to blows with people which can lead to bodily harm. It can lead to death. It can have permanent injuries from those things. So we should be careful that our tongue is not being used to cause these kinds of quarrels. Verse 7, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Right? A fool's mouth is his ruin. Right? On the day of judgment... His words will condemn him. It will lead to his ruin. And it many times will lead to his ruin in this life. Right? Because he cannot control his tongue, he may, he may lose his job. He may lose his marriage. He may lose his children. He may lose many of his friends. Because he cannot 
control his tongue. His mouth leads to his ruin, to his destruction. Now, ultimately, if he does not repent of these sins, it will lead to his eternal ruin and destruction on the day of judgment. The lips are a snare to his soul, right? His eternal soul is ensnared because of his lips, meaning his sins that he commits with his lips. Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 33 to 37 Matthew 12, 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's the same as Proverbs 18, that his lips are a snare to his soul, because he will be judged on the day of judgment by his words. These will be brought forward either to prove that he belongs to Christ or to prove that he does not belong to Christ. Out of the mouth, right, is the abundance of the heart, the uh, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It proves what is there in the heart. Then also James chapter 3. James 3, we referenced earlier, but we'll read it because it does have a lot to say about the tongue. James 3 verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defies the entire body, defiles the entire body, and set on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison." With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. There, the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity is found in the tongue. All sins, many sins, come from this one source, from the tongue. And so we ought to be very guarded and careful. And here it's warning us of the dangers of the tongue. Verse 8, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. 
the words of a whisperer, one who likes to go from person to person and reveal secrets, whisper about this and that sin, about did you hear this, did you hear that? They get some juicy bit of information and then they run from person to person to person to person and they whisper these things. And when you hear those things, they're like a dainty morsel. It tastes so sweet, so good, and it goes down into the innermost parts of the body. Meaning a person ingests these things and they go down into their heart and into their mind and then it changes their view, their perception, the perspective that they have of this person of whom they've heard these many whispers. The slander, the gossip, the salacious rumors, whatever it is, it changes their perspective of this fellow who is being slandered. And so now it goes down deep into them. It destroys love, affection, peace that existed among friends because of the whisperer who goes around spreading his dainty morsels. In Psalm 55, it describes their words like butter. And isn't it true that butter, though I wouldn't suggest eating it plain, but if you did eat it plain, it would just slide right down your throat, right? It just goes right down because it's, you know, it's kind of slick. 55, <clears throat> 20 to 21. It says, He has put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Here, the words, the speech, are described as butter and oil, which are very smooth, they're very slick, they go down very easily, right? It's not hard to ingest those things. But inside, <clears throat> truly, there's war, there's destruction, there's turmoil within those things. And this is what the whisperer does. The way that he comes is very soft-spoken. It's very quiet, quiet. He's not belligerent, right? He's revealing these secrets in this very soft, soft-spoken, intimate way. But what it results in is destruction toward the one that he's whispering about. <clears throat> and we have to be very guarded against these things. Because if they go down within us, if we ingest these lies and these whisperings, then it's going to... Uh, cause us to be prejudiced against the one that he's speaking against and to form these views and opinions that are not consistent with reality or what we have known. So we must be on guard against those things. Verse 9, he also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. <clears throat> Here two people are mentioned, the one slack in his work and the one who destroys. And this would be the sluggard on the one hand and the prodigal on the other hand. A sluggard and a prodigal are brothers because the result of both a sluggard and a prodigal is destruction, is ruin, is misery, right? They both result in poverty. The sluggard is reduced to poverty by his laziness. The prodigal is reduced to poverty by his riotous living. And this is why they are brothers because both of them live in the poorhouse together. 
But they come there by different means. The one by his neglect, the other by his loose living, by the way that he lives this loose, riotous kind of living. This is the one who destroys. He destroys his inheritance. He destroys his livelihood. He destroys his riches. Whatever he has, he destroys and consumes these things through his riotous living. Isn't this what happened with the prodigal son? He squandered his inheritance on prostitutes, drinking, gambling, right? The, the types of things that people want to do, right? Who want to live that kind of sordid life. They go and they squander all of their money on these kinds of things. And then at the end of it, they have nothing left. And they're there with the sluggard who also has nothing sitting on the street corner begging for food, right? Wanting you and me to give to them our hard-earned dollars, but we're not going to do it, right? Because we're wise to their game because we're reading the book of Proverbs here, which tells us that they are brought to this ruin through their own devices. Proverbs chapter 6 mentioned both of them here in the same chapter. Proverbs 6, 9 to 11, the sluggard first. 6, 9, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come on like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. There, the sluggard who sleeps and slumbers and refuses to work is reduced to poverty and to need as a result of his laziness. But then also, verse 26. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for precious life. Right On an account of a harlot, this would be the prodigal. He squanders his living on harlots, on drink, on drugs, gambling, these kinds of things. And then what is the result? He's reduced to a loaf of bread. All he has, his only possession, is a meager loaf of bread. Right? He can share that with the sluggard over here. Both of them can have a half a loaf of bread together. This is why he says they are brothers, because they both live in misery and in poverty because of their sinful choices. The one being lazy and the other one indulging in lust. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, a strong tower where the righteous man who is righteous, not on his own basis. This is the righteous man who has been made righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But this is where he goes as a place of safety. He is made safe from the vengeance of God, from the justice, from the condemnation of the law, right? He's safe from sin and from its consequences. He's safe from Satan and from hell, right? He's safe from all spiritual enemies, right? He is safe from the wrath to come. He is safe from the second death. All of the miseries associated with sin. There is a strong tower where we can run and find safety from all of these things. And who is this place of safety? Well, here it is the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is this strong tower where we can go and be saved, have a place of safety from all the miseries that are the result of our sin. And this is why it says, like in Genesis chapter 4, that time men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. They're calling on the name of the Lord to save them, 
to save them from the miseries of sin. And if we go to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 8 to 13. Romans 10, verse 8 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the same as here. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Not for all men, but for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And according to Romans chapter 10, who is that Lord that we call upon? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus Christ is the strong tower where sinful men can run and find safety by calling upon his name to save them and give to them a righteousness that does not come from their own obedience or their own keeping of the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and is for everyone who believes. This is the only place of safety where a man can pass safely through the waters of God's judgment without resulting in condemnation. And any other source of safety will not bring about safety, but only will result in destruction. Only in Christ can we have a strong tower by which we can be saved from all of the miseries of sin. Verse 11. Not many, it says in 1 Corinthians, that not many of you were wealthy. And notice in verse 11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his own imagination. Many people in this world do not, they refuse to trust in Jesus Christ. They refuse to go to this strong tower as a refuge, as a safe place from the wrath to come. And one of the alternates that people will use, instead of trusting in Christ, what do they depend on? What do they rely on? What do they think will save them and will deliver them from all of the miseries of this world? Their riches. And the rich man... Right, His wealth is his strong city. He doesn't need to go to the strong tower who is Jesus Christ because of all of his wealth. His wealth is a strong city for him. It fortifies him. It protects him from many of the miseries that other people experience in this life. And yet, what will he find out on the day of judgment? Can his wealth save him from his sins? No, it will not deliver him at all. And that's why he says, like a high wall in his own imagination. In his own mind and in his own imagination, his riches provide safety and security for him, and they, might, they may provide it in a small measure in this present life. Because it is true that rich people, because of their wealth, they have access to some comforts that other people do not have, and they are relieved from some of the miseries that are felt amongst the common men. The rich man doesn't know what it is to be in hunger. 
because he has plenty of food and he's always able to buy whatever he needs to satisfy his appetite. So he doesn't feel that misery that many other people may feel. So in his own mind, in his imagination, he is safe, he is secure. And he thinks that his wealth will deliver him on the day of judgment. But can our money bring us reconciliation before God? Can it deliver us from our sin? Can we just buy our way into heaven? No, of course not. How foolish for someone to think this. And yet this is what, these are what riches do to many people. They blind them to reality. And they think that everything will be fine for many, many years because of the abundance of their wealth. Luke chapter 12, Jesus spoke a parable to this occasion. Luke 12, 13. Luke 12, 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, So you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So it is. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There, his own imagination, it says in our passage in Proverbs 18, 11, a high wall in his own imagination. Well, isn't that what happened with this rich man? In his own imagination, he's reasoning in his own mind. And in his own imagination, he's concluding that his riches, this great prosperity he has, will provide him with many years to take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But he doesn't realize that that very night his soul was required of him. And then all of his possessions, because we come into the world naked, and we will leave this world naked. We will take nothing with us into the life to come. Everything that we possess will stay here in this present world, and we will stand empty, naked before God in the sense of taking our possessions with us. And then, whose will they be? Well, they'll be the federal governments. They'll come and take, take it, and then they're going to squander it on all sorts of useless programs. This is the way it works today, and this is what happens to many, many people. How foolish to put our hope in the vanity, the fleetingness of riches, and yet many people do so. He's warning us not to do that. Isn't that what Proverbs is warning us as well? We need to be rich toward God. And how are we rich toward God? Through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Rich in faith. That's what we need to commend us before God. Rich in faith in Jesus Christ in having the riches of Christ bestowed upon us. Those are the riches that will give a man approval in the sight of God. Then verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Before destruction, the heart is haughty. That's what we just read from Luke chapter 12. Wasn't he haughty 
in his perceptions of himself, in all that he had done, all that he had accomplished for himself, his haughtiness proceeded, went just before his destruction. And then he was humbled and brought low. Right? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But on the contrast, the humble man will be honored. When we humble ourselves, then God will lift us up. And this is the way that we want it. We have to humble ourselves and chiefly, primarily, what is the area in which we need to be humbled? Is in relation to our sin. We have to be humbled over our own sin. And we have to confess what God's word says concerning us, that we deserve to die because of our sins, that we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve an eternity in hell because of our sins. And it is only when a man comes to this conclusion that he can be honored and be reconciled to God and be called a child of God. That humility precedes honor. And what greater honor is it to call God our God, to have him as our father, and to have the right to be called children of God, to have Jesus Christ as our elder brother, to have him as our husband, to have him as our great high priest who is over the household of God. These are great honors. But before any man can know of these honors, he must first be humbled through the knowledge of his own sinfulness. And then he will be lifted up and he will be exalted. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride. Pride goes before destruction. Pride is one of these root or foundational sins that exist in men. Every sin, in one way or another, is rooted in pride, in our own pride and arrogance. And it leads to the destruction and downfall of many, many people. Well, may that not be true of us. We have to hate pride, and we have to see ourselves before God in light of His Word. And not only before God, but also we need to see ourselves in relationship to one another in terms of our own sinfulness so that we will be humble toward one another as well and won't be haughty toward God or haughty and arrogant toward one another. So let's then pursue the pathway of humility, knowing that these are the ones that God looks to, the one who is contrite, who is lowly in spirit, and who trembles at his word. Those are the ones that God will exalt in the life to come. And that's the exaltation that we should desire. Not the exaltation in this world, not to have honor in this life, but to have that honor in the life to come. To have Jesus say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that will only be known amongst those who are humble, who are contrite, and who are lowly in spirit. So then let us practice that one toward Let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. And I'm going to ask, uh, Casey, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?